Good evening. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses there to begin or to begin this evening. It's good to see everybody here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for the warm welcome that you have given me and my family. And I'm looking forward to the next few days with you. Having a lot to say, let's get right in into the text. Daniel chapter 1, look in verse 1 with me. Daniel 1 in verse 1. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of King Je- or of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar. And to Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. A very familiar story. You know, not long after the children of Israel were led out of Egypt by Moses, God warned them. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God told them, he said, if you trust in me, if you listen to me, if you obey me, if you put your complete faith in me, I will see that you are taken care of, I will see that you prosper, I will see that everything is a-okay. But with that warning came another warning because you'll remember that God also said, if you do not obey me and if you do not listen to me and trust me and and, and do the things that I tell you to do, I will allow your enemies to defeat you, you will be scattered and you will be taken captive. And after the kingdom divided, the northern kingdom of Israel fell completely away from the Lord. And of course, the Lord is faithful about His promises. The Lord kept His promises. And so in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and held them captive. Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, they would be in a period of time where they would have some good kings, some bad kings, some mediocre kings, but at the end of the day, they would ultimately fall into the same fate. They would be taken captive in around 605 B.C. when the Babylonians would dominate the Assyrians. And it was at this time when Nebuchadnezzar returned 
to Babylon with several hostages from among the Jewish people. And it was at this time when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were among those who had been completely uprooted from their families and their homes and their homeland. And they were taken captive into Babylon. What I want you to understand about this is that this, for these young boys, was a life-changing, life-altering occasion. It was not an easy time for them. They had been completely uprooted. Their lives had been completely turned upside down. They were dealing with something that they had never dealt with before. Now when you think of the story of Daniel and his friends, what do you normally think about? Well for some of you, I'm sure it is immediately the story of Daniel and the lion's den, right? That's the first thing that comes to our minds. Perhaps for you, it is the story of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and as I would say when I was a child, a a billy goat, because that's what my parents would say. They would say, why, what did you study? And I would come in and I would say, it's about Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. But no, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they told Nebuchadnezzar, no, we will not bow down to your golden image. We will not serve him. We will not serve You, we are going to serve God. Or maybe it's the story in Daniel chapter 1 of uh, Daniel rejecting and his friends rejecting the king's choice food and they only ate vegetables. Maybe you parents use that as as a good way to get your kids to eat their vegetables. I don't know. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of things that we could talk about tonight and our time would be well spent. This is what I want you to think about tonight. What was it like to live in Babylon? You know, it's very hard for us to contemplate what it must have been like to be in a society and a culture that was basically an agrarian society. A society where you did not have a lot of technology. Uh, You definitely did not have the technology that we have today. A society that did not even have any kind of warning when a foreign army would come and invade. You would wake up one morning and, hey, there the army is and you're at war. That's the society. That's the culture in which they lived. And not only were, were they living in a culture like this, they were not just taken captive in place. It wasn't just that Jerusalem and Judah would be held hostage there in Jerusalem and in Judah. These men were uprooted from their homeland and they were brought to Babylon and they were brought back to serve Babylon. What was life like for them? What was it like living in Babylon? Tonight, I want us to do two things, and the first of which is I want us to talk about this. What was life like for these men? And then we're going to come back, and we're going to apply it and make it practical to us today, because really we don't have to make it practical. It already is practical. We're just going to point out the obvious, I hope, anyways, 
And I hope that our time tonight will be well spent in doing so. But first of all, what was life like for these men in Babylon? First of all, let's just point out that they were constantly being influenced by their new culture. Nebuchadnezzar was leading the dominant world empire of their day. When you think of a dominant world empire, please understand this was the dominant world empire of their day. You might compare it to the United States of America, the country in which we live in. We claim to be and probably are the dominant world empire in this world today. And as you can imagine... In that day and time, believe it or not, they would deal with some of the things that we may deal with as Americans today in the 21st century. There was a certain amount of uh, of pomp and and pride and even some arrogance and egoism. And and Nebuchadnezzar certainly had this pride. He, He had this pride in his country as their conqueror and he wanted to have his own way. And so while in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar saw that there were some young men who could help him in his cause. And if you'll notice in verse 3 and verse 4, the Bible tells us that these were youths in whom was no defect. They were good looking. Nothing wrong with being good looking, is there? They were good looking. They were intelligent. In every branch of wisdom, they were endowed with understanding and discernment. And they had the ability to serve in the king's court. And so from among these men, we have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these men were given the golden opportunity, if you will, to be immersed in the teaching and the literature of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans for three full years. And then after these three years, they would be appointed to the king's personal service. And as a part of all of this, they would be treated essentially like royalty. Now think about this for just a second. Think about what it would be like in this culture to be brought in to the dominant world empire, to be taken under the tutelage of this king, this great king, and and all the people that would be teaching him. And think about what it would be like to be treated as royalty when you came from Judah and Jerusalem. I want you to appreciate what these young men were going through. As a part of this, they would be given special food and drink. The king's choice food, the king's choice wine. And for young people, leaving home and going into this new big capital city, this new lifestyle might actually be appealing to them. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes we read the story of Daniel and we see what Daniel did not do and what Shadrach and Meshach did not do and we think to ourselves, great, good story. That's good for our children, but but really what's in it for us? But just think about this for a second. Could it be that this new place could be appealing? You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a goal in his mind for these young men. And his goal was to acclimate these young men into Babylon. How did he do that? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get them to see that, hey, Babylon is not my homeland, but hey, it's not that bad. 
I didn't get treated like this in my homeland. I didn't get to eat like this at home. It would be similar today to a country boy graduating high school in Limestone County, Alabama, going to college, getting a degree, moving to some big city somewhere where he gets his dream job and dream salary, and, he, and, and he's, act, he's treated as if he were really important. And then eventually... He forgets his roots and begins to enjoy a new lifestyle. And he probably begins to enjoy that lifestyle a little bit too much. And what happens when you do that? You forget who you are. You forget where you came from. I want us to appreciate what these men were going through. And not only were these young men treated like royals, notice verse 7 again, the Bible says, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. They were given brand new names. And if you are reading this, you might be tempted to think, what's the big deal about this? Some of you already know what the big deal is. You, you learned this in your high school class growing up, right? What was, what was happening here? What was Nebuchadnezzar trying to accomplish I have to tell you, it reeks of evil influence. Daniel's Hebrew name was, of course, Daniel. And in the Hebrew, that name means God is my judge. It was a name to remind Daniel who he served, that he served God. But Nebuchadnezzar's commander assigned him the Babylonian, the Chaldean name Bel to Shazar, which means a servant of Bel, or protect the life of Bel. Hananiah's name in the Hebrew language means Yahweh, or the Lord is gracious. It's a name to remind Hananiah that the Lord is indeed gracious. That he gives us that which we do not deserve. He gives us his favor. But yet, he was given the Babylonian name of Shadrach, which means the command of a coup or inspired by the sun god. Mishael's name in the Hebrew language means who is what God is. But his name was changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Azariah's name in the Hebrew language means Yahweh has helped. But his name was changed to the Babylonian name of Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Here's the point. Nebuchadnezzar was not just trying to change these young men's language and their educational understanding. He was trying, trying to change their lifestyle. He wanted to change not only their lifestyle, but he wanted to change their faith. And at every turn, they were being indoctrinated into that culture in that day and time. You see, we read this story so often, and again, we think to ourselves, great story. What's the big deal? Ladies and gentlemen, please understand that they were living this story and that words cannot write the difficulty that these men were up against. Their faith was constantly being attacked at every turn. Does it sound familiar today to today's culture? We'll come back to that. 
But I also want you to see that not only uh, was their faith or were they constantly influenced by their new culture, they were often persecuted for their faith. Go to Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to read all of this by any means, but we'll at least refer to it. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about the kingdoms of the earth. And when Daniel finally interprets this dream for, these, for Nebuchadnezzar, he, Nebuchadnezzar learns essentially for the first time that Babylon is not going to always be the dominant world empire. They're not going to dominate forever. And so in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds a huge gold image. And what is significant about that is that the vision in his dream back in chapter 2 represented Babylon just by, you'll remember this, the head of gold. And then there were other parts of the body. You know, there was clay and there was iron and there was all of these other things that the body would consist of, right? And those would represent other dominant world empires later on down the road. But Nebuchadnezzar's empire was only represented by the head of gold. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 3? He decides, well, my empire is going to dominate forever. So I'm going to build this great statue and it's going to all be gold. And it's going to represent Babylon today at the very least. And so he wants everybody to bow down to this statue. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah say, no. We're not going to bow down to your statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar has them brought into this fiery furnace. They increase the heat of this furnace and God was with them and they survived that great persecution. But not only that, they were often targeted with jealousy and envy. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were given prominent roles inside the Babylonian government. And because of their faith and their uncompromising character, God gives them a lot of success. And so in Daniel chapter 6, under the rule of Darius, we see where Daniel was placed in charge of everybody. The problem with that is that everybody didn't like it, right? At least some did not like it. And so what happens to Daniel? Well, Darius is tricked into making a decree knowing that Daniel would not stop praying to God. The people tricked Darius into making this decree. And ultimately Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And of course God was with with him and he lived through it all. But why did that happen? It happened because of envy. It happened because of jealousy. It happened because of anger and wrath. And here's the point. Life in Babylon was not easy for these men at all. Living in Babylon was not easy. Uh, Again, don't look at this story and think to yourselves, wow, that is a great story. Look how rewarding it is to be a faithful child of God. Yes, that's true. It is rewarding to be a faithful child of God. But please understand that these men, while they had a lot of spiritual success they dealt with a lot in fact they faced a lot of things that you and I don't even face today in our ungodly culture and so the question is tonight what can we learn from their experiences and this is what I want us to spend the rest of our time on this evening three things and then the lesson will be yours first of all we need to understand that we are living in Babylon 
We are living in an evil, in a wicked, in a twisted, in a backwards, in an upside down world. And I realize that that may sound really negative and I'm a really positive person, okay? But the reality is, is we live in a wicked, wicked culture. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to notice what is said in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. A familiar passage for many of you. John says this, 1 John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. John tells us that all that is in the world is lust and pride, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and that is our world. And by the way, this world is not our home. That's why James 4 and verse 4, James tells us, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is writing to Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, and he's telling them, Stop your quarreling, stop your bickering, stop your fighting. And he calls them out for loving this world. And what does he compare their love for this world to? What does he call it? He calls it adultery. Now you tell me. Actually don't. What is adultery? To God it's when we fall in love with the world. And we cheat on him. You see, to God, the ultimate idea of adultery here is when we fall in love with the world, we are committing adultery. We are cheating on God. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because the same imagery is used throughout the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 25, do you remember when God's people played the harlot with the daughters of Moab? Now, I do believe that that is indicative of the fact that some of the Israelites were fornicating, yes. But the focus of that text is not so much on fornication as it is that they turned to the gods of Moab. They were cheating on God. They were committing spiritual adultery. This imagery is found in the prophets too. Have you ever read the prophet Hosea? What is Hosea told to go and to do? He's told to go marry a harlot, to go marry a prostitute, to go marry this ungodly person. And so he goes and he marries Gomer. And then in chapter 3, he's then told to love a woman who has cheated on her husband who is an adulteress. And I personally believe that's probably Gomer too. I don't know that I can prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I believe that's probably her too. And what's the whole point of Hosea? That whole 
story is to illustrate for God's people that when you leave God for other gods or for whatever this world has to offer, you are cheating on the God of heaven who made you, who created you, who loved you, who gave his son to die for you. That's the whole point. And all throughout the Bible, we see this imagery, and we need to understand very clearly that the world that we live in, ladies and gentlemen, it is a wicked, wicked world. And in this world that's so wicked, we need to also understand, number two, that wicked people are going to do wicked things. Now, why do I say that? It's because I think sometimes we act surprised when wicked people do wicked things. I think sometimes we act and we are really shocked by that. That wicked people might do wicked things. Let me give you an illustration of that. I love SeaWorld. It is my favorite place on this earth. I love the whales. In fact, one Days when I retire, if preachers get to retire, Steve, I don't know if that ever happens, but you will see me out in the Pacific somewhere swimming with the whales, okay? I love whales to death. I love the Shamu show and that, and that whale that goes up in the air to the Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On. I mean, it gets me every time. Tears coming down. And don't get me started on those beautiful white beluga whales. I'll start crying. I love, I love SeaWorld. Now... A few years ago, some of you already know where I'm going with this, there was a documentary about SeaWorld, right? And the treatment of the whales, particularly in one part of it, the baby whales and the mother whales. Now, what you may or may not know is that the same people who advocate for better treatment for the mother whales and baby whales are also some of the same people that would advocate for mothers to have the right to go down to the local abortion clinic and to end the life of their unborn children in that ungodly act. I don't know about you, but that seems backwards to me. Doesn't it to you? It seems completely upside down that we live in a world where if you kill a bald eagle, you go to jail for life. But if you kill an unborn child, you are held up as the epitome of women's rights. That's the culture we live in. I could sit here all night and point out inconsistency after inconsistency about the world that we live in. It is an upside down world and it is a place where wicked people are going to do wicked things. We need to understand that. And what's interesting about that is God even warns us that this is going to happen. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter warns. He, he says this, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That, when you see that phrase in the New Testament, or that word Gentiles in the New Testament, sometimes you can translate that the world, okay? And so here you could just substitute world for Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the world 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, sometimes you're going to be doing what's right, and the world's going to come and say, you're doing what's wrong. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 5, or chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. In other words, he says, hey, don't be surprised. This is going to happen. Evil people are going to do evil things. You rejoice in Christ. Don't let those evil people drag you down. Keep your joy. Be happy in the Lord. Find your strength and your faith in God. Let me illustrate this for you in another way. Take your Bibles and turn back to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. And I want you to notice what the wise man says in verse 15. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. Proverbs 17 and verse 15, notice what it says. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Do we live in a day and time where people do that? They justify the wicked, they condemn the righteous. Do we live in a day and time like that? What about Proverbs in verse 5, look at what it says there. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Do people today in our culture, do they show partiality to the wicked and thrust aside the righteous in, just, in judgment? Do they do that? Absolutely they do. We see it all of the time. Look over at Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24, and notice what it says there in verse 23. Proverbs 24 and verse 23, a very familiar verse. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, because, or, or, or he who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him, but those who rebuke the wicked will be a delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Do people show partiality in judgment today? Do people claim that good is evil and evil is good? Do people do that today? Of course they do. It happened in the day and times which the Bible was written in. It still happens today. It happened in Isaiah's day and time. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Just a few pages over in my Bible. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Notice what it says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes and drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe. Are there people, politicians, who justify the wicked for a bribe in our culture today? Absolutely there are. We live in a twisted 
world where wicked people are going to do wicked things. Now, let me ask you this. Why would anybody want to fall in love with this world? Here's why I ask that. It's because the temptation for so many of us is to have one foot here and one foot in the world. Now you see how my body is standing right here? Here's what happens. The world just tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs before long. We're doing the spiritual splits. That's exactly what's happening. We're trying to stay in the world, but at the same time, we're trying to be good, God-fearing people, right? We're trying to be people who love God and who are upstanding citizens, who are moral people, but we love the world too. And you know what God says? He says, guess what? You can't have them both. Because listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you are trying to fit in in this world, then you will not fit in in that one, I can guarantee it. God calls us to be separate from this world, to be different from this world, not to go out of this world. Why? Because we've got to shine our lights, we've got to evangelize, we've got to bring the lost to Christ. But at the end of the day, we cannot be conformed to this world. As Paul says in Romans 12, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to think The way God wants us to think. And how are we going to do that? We've got to get into his word. We've got to understand how he thinks. We've got to understand how he sees this world as wicked and evil and lost. And we've got to be his messengers to bring people to Christ. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world that is wicked. We are living in Babylon. Where evil influences are around us every day. That's not negativity. I am positive we are living in Babylon today. It's reality. And so finally, how do we deal with that in a positive way? How do we try to to, to live in this world and, and navigate through all of this? Well, what does the story of Daniel teach us? Above all lessons in the book of Daniel, I think there's one lesson that is just prevalent throughout the whole book of Daniel and that is this we must be consistent in our faith consistency what does that mean to you I'm afraid to some Christians that word consistency has been lost in translation or the meaning has anyways What does it mean to be consistent? I'm going to tell you what it meant for Daniel. If you go back to Daniel, you look in Daniel chapter 1, what you're going to find is that Daniel and his friends chose not to defile themselves by eating the king's choice food. They ate vegetables. Yes, kids, eat your vegetables, right? They ate vegetables and they were stronger than the ones who did eat. Nebuchadnezzar's choice food. They were not going to compromise their character. They were going to be consistent. In Daniel chapter 3, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the face of death said to Nebuchadnezzar, even if we do die in this fire, we are not going to bow down to your God, King Nebuchadnezzar. Can I just say something about consistency? Consistency in character is found with who you surround yourself with. And can I just say Daniel had some good friends? And Daniel surrounded himself with some good friends to help hold him up. Even though they were in the minority, they all were consistent in their character. They would not compromise. In Daniel chapter 6, how did the other leaders know that Daniel, or that they could trap Daniel in the first place? Do you remember that? They knew that he would not compromise his faith in God. They knew that he would not stop praying as was his habit three times a day. And so they trapped Daniel and Darius by Daniel's own consistent character. Is your life that consistent? where people can trap you by your own consistency just think about that you know I think there's a real temptation today for us to be inconsistent I think there's a real temptation in the church today for people to say well that's just a matter of judgment can I just tell you something about that matters of judgment do exist but can I tell you they're few and far between a lot of times and let me tell you why I say that I say that because behind every matter of judgment is a biblical principle that we should be applying to that matter of judgment and that when we all apply the same book to our matters of judgment guess what we're going to do we're going to be one in our matters of judgment at least for the most part there's this real desire I think sometimes again for us to have one foot in the world one foot in the church and we're just so inconsistent sometimes we are so tempted to be so fickle in our faith we claim to seek God first but can we honestly say that we put God first always we claim that God is our number one priority but what about when Our kids have a ball game or a play or a band concert. What takes priority in that moment? Is God number one? We sure do sing about it, don't we? My dad said, and he heard it from somebody else, the greatest lies that people tell or Christians tell are when they sing, right? Do you realize we make some bold statements when we sing? Have you ever noticed the words that we sing? We make some bold statements. Are we really meaning what we're singing? Are we lying to God when we sing and to one another? Are we being hypocritical? Are we being consistent or inconsistent? We claim to trust in the Lord always, but what about when life happens? What about when times are tough? What about when COVID-19 strikes? No, he didn't go there, right? Do we really trust in the Lord? What about when your marriage is struggling? Do you listen to the world? 
Do you listen to your favorite podcaster or your favorite blogger or your counselor or somebody else that's going to give you some ungodly advice? And let me just tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. If you want somebody to tell you what you want to hear, then guess what? You will find them. Years ago, preachers would say, be careful who you go to for counsel for marriage problems. And today there are people even in the church that will tell you to get a divorce. Who do you listen to? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? In Genesis 3, and they were hiding from God. Do you remember the second question that God asked Adam? The first one was, where are you? Now, that was a rhetorical question, right, really. I mean, God already knew where Adam was. He just wanted to see if Adam knew where Adam was. But the second one was, who told you? Do we trust in God or do we trust in somebody else because they'll tell us what we want to hear? What about when you're having trouble raising your kids? Who do you listen to? What about when there is too much month left at the end of the money? Do you trust in God or do you try to take matters into your own hands? But we, we claim to be clothed with Christ, that Christ lives in us. But can people see that? And how you talk? Can people see that in the jokes that you listen to? And by the way, I can pull up my Instagram right now and I can watch the reels that my friends send me. I better turn it off. It might go off real loud. Is that funny to us? Some of it is. But is all of it? It shouldn't be. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what Daniel teaches us and Hanani, Azariah, and Michelle teach us is that we have to be consistent. And here's the point. If you want to make a difference in this world, then you are going to make a difference by one thing. By your consistency. Are you really who you profess to be? How many in here profess to be Christians? Can you raise your hand if you profess to be a Christian? Please, everybody, okay. Most people, that's good. Are you really who you claim to be? Because that's what Daniel teaches us. You want to make a difference in this world? Remember who you are, remember who you claim to be, and be who you claim to be. And if you'll do that then you'll make a difference in this world. Tomorrow we're going to talk about Jonah. And I can't wait to be with you tomorrow night. You may be here and you're not a child of God. The Bible says he was believed and has been baptized will be saved. We'd love to help you do that tonight. You may be here and you're a child of God, but maybe you've got one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and you're here tonight, and I'm so grateful you're here, but you're also being pulled away by temptation, and maybe there's something in your life that should not be in your life. We would love to help you get back on track. We'll pray with you and for you that God will forgive you. You have a loving family here that will hold you accountable and help you let us help you right now and so if we can help you in any way please come to the front as we stand and as we sing